Thanks, Amanda. Thank you, team. Thank you, John. Well, good morning again, church. Listen, we have a lot of reasons to celebrate, do we not? We really do. It's been a great morning already. Got to celebrate with Believer's Baptism. Uh, Preston was in the back, and as soon as he came out, he said, I'm just so happy. Uh, there's a joy in that, isn't it? It's good. And, man, we get to celebrate that so much. Last week, we got to celebrate with the Maws. Uh, they were, if you were not here last week, uh, Morgan and Sarah Ma, do we have that uh, picture up there? I think we do. Uh, got baptized last week, and so if you get a chance to see them, I want to make sure uh, you celebrate with them. Well, we got actually another baptism this next service uh, as well. There they are. Uh, Morgan and Sarah Ma both coming uh, to share their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, man, we have had five, six weeks in a row where we are watching people come to faith in Jesus Christ, express that through believers' baptism. These are reasons to celebrate, and I'm glad that we get to do that together. Uh, but now, if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 is where we're going to be as we wrap up our Repenters series. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Hopefully you've got a copy of God's Word there with you. Uh, if not, maybe a device that you can look at. If you don't, I'm sure somebody would let you look on with them. Uh, but Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 is where we're going to be in just a second. And look, i got to be honest, I'm sorry we're wrapping this series up. Uh, if truth be told, I could probably extend this thing out for another eight weeks. There's so much more that can be said. Uh, but even though we're ending this series, hopefully we have learned enough to recognize we're not going to end the concept. The goal of this series is that we would become a repenting people. That this would simply be normal in our spiritual posture. That we would just continually repent. And we do that because we've learned some things over the course of this series. By now, I hope we all recognize that we are in a war with our flesh. Uh, the battle that you and I face is not simply external from spiritual forces or from the world, but there's literally a, a power inside of us that we feel, that feels very personal, that is our flesh, and it is drawing us away from Christ. We have these desires that would lead us into sin and destruction if we just let it run amok. We've learned that even though we're believers, we are still wrestling with this indwelling sin. And this is a fight that we all face. We're all going to be facing this, and not just now, but for the rest of our lives. Until Jesus comes back, we are going to be in this fight. Hence why we need to be repenters. Constantly, throughout our lives, as we see new things, new areas of sin, we say, Lord, I turn away from that sin, and instead I want to sow to your Holy Spirit. I want to live in you. Uh, but this isn't simply uh, something that, that, that might break us down or make it discouraged. Instead, hopefully it's very hopeful for you. Because we've also learned that, man, I never have to fear to repent. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, whenever I, I find some new area of sin or new failure, I never have to worry that I've, I've somehow exhausted God's grace, that he's already forgiven me of my sins. He already knows about it. So I never have to have any fear in bringing this to the Lord, saying, Lord, help me with this. And so we can constantly repent without any fear, and then it gets better. He says, not only am I going to forgive you of your sins, I'm actually going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So the Holy Spirit does this supernatural work where he changes us. Slowly, over time, he sanctifies us to make us more like him. Hence why we need to constantly be repenters. And so even though we're ending out the series, I hope that we will carry this on as we move forward. But since we're ending, I thought we would end where we began. If you were here eight weeks ago when we were in week one, we talked about the Hulk. Because that was a fairly apt metaphor for the flesh in our life. 
If you may know the Hulk, the Hulk is an alter ego of Dr. Banner, the comic book character. And mild-mannered scientist Dr. Banner has a secret. Inside this quiet scientist is a hulking green rage monster. And whenever he got agitated, this would come out. And listen, this is kind of the, the flesh that we fight with. We recognize that inside of us, there are these desires that if they come out and we leave them unchecked, are going to lead to ruin and destruction. But Dr. Banner has a very specific problem. There's one thing that really sets him off. It's one thing that draws the Hulk out. He says, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. That was always the trigger for the Hulk, right? It was when he got angry. And if Dr. Banner gets angry, he turns into the Hulk. And so today we're looking at yet another one of these major battlegrounds of the flesh that we're all going to fight. We've looked at sexual temptation. Last week we looked at greed. And this week we're going to end off by looking at anger. And that's where we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Now we're going to read a few different verses here, and I really want you to look for anger in this text. You'll easily be able to see it, but this also functions as kind of a, a, kind of a summary of everything that we've learned so far. So look at Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 5. Look at what he says. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. And let me just pause even right there. Notice what he's saying there. He's like, you need to put these things to death. This whatever is earthly in you, that's your flesh, that sarks in the Greek, the, this sinful desire that we have. And the attitude is not simply be aware, it is kill it. Put it to death. This is that mortification that we talked about a few weeks ago. This is the fight that we are in. Look at the next verse, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let's stop right there. You might notice these are the two battlegrounds we've already faced. Those first few words are really talking about sexual desire, and then that last one, covetousness, is greed, which he says is idolatry. Let's go on to verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Did you see that? There's that sanctification. There's that transformation. We don't simply fight against the flesh. No, when we sow to the Spirit, we are literally putting on Jesus Christ. He is transforming us to be just like Him. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, you must, the, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right, so we see these multiple battlegrounds. We see this fight with the flesh, but specifically, we see a fight with anger. Look back at verse 8 and notice what it says here. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
He starts with the inner attitude, and then he gets to some of the outer expressions of that. But he keeps coming back to this anger, this wrath, this malice. And one of the major lusts that you and I are going to deal with, these major desires that our flesh will stir up within us, is an anger in us. And let's all be real honest. We've all gotten a little angrier in the past few years, have we not? We are living in an angry time. It's different almost than even it was 10 years ago. I mean, just think about the pandemic. Throughout the pandemic, everybody was angry about everything. It did not matter which side you were on. We were angry there was a pandemic. We were angry that there were masks. We were angry that there were lockdowns. We were angry that there weren't enough lockdowns. We were angry that people wore masks. We were angry that people didn't wear masks. We were angry about everything. Angry why we did this. Angry why we did that. Angry about the timetable. Angry about what other people were doing. We were all just angry. And we would vent that on other people. And honestly, we have lived in a culture that has simply been stoking that anger. That, that finds that anger valuable to them and will actually encourage it in us. Which is why we find ourselves in a kind of a, an anger feedback loop. You can see this on social media. Social media is actively designed to make us angry and keep us angry. Did you know that? Check out this quote. Uh, this is from New York Magazine. I found this out. Uh, it says this, as Jaron Lanier, a pioneer in virtual reality, points out, anger is the emotion most effective at driving engagement. That's engagement with social media, which also makes it in a market for attention the most profitable one. Jaron Lanier, by the way, if you ever saw the, uh, the Netflix documentary, A Social Dilemma, he was one of the designers that was there. These are one of the early pioneers of the internet, the architects of social media, who are now telling us what, what their, their creations have wrought. And they're saying this, we use anger to keep you engaged. That's what keeps your eyeballs. That's why. So we have these anger engines that stoke our outrage. This is why our news, and I use that in quotes, continues to do the same thing. How much of our news, regardless of where you get it, is actual news, and how much of it is simply stoking our outrage about something, which keeps us engaged, which keeps us watching it. So we find ourselves angrier than we have been in a long time. We find ourselves simply having more and more anger. So the question we need to ask ourselves is like, what do we do with that? How are we supposed to deal with this? If this is a part of our flesh, how do we deal with it? Well, let's ask an important question. Why are we angry? Like, not just, let's not just acknowledge that we're angry. Why are we angry? It's an important question because you are going to feel anger in your life. This is a universal thing. We are all going to feel anger at different times. And not all anger is bad. This is just a normal part of our experience. Look at what Paul's going to say in Ephesians 4, uh, 26 and 27. It says this. It says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Interesting here. Paul does not say, don't be angry. He says, no, you're going to be angry and because this is just, this happens. There's a, sometimes reasons to be angry in life. There, are, there is such a thing as righteous anger. We ought to be angry at injustice. We ought to be angry at sin. We ought to be angry at evil. We ought to be angry at the atrocities that we see being committed in Ukraine right now. That ought to stir up righteous anger. But put that verse back up there. But please notice what it says. He says, be angry, but don't sin. 
He's acknowledging that, listen, yes, there's such a thing as righteous anger, but there's also a propensity to sin in that anger. So much so that the devil is going to literally partner up with our flesh to encourage that anger to get out of hand. And if you and I are not careful, if we do not ask this question, why am I angry, we will watch that anger begin to spill over. But there's such a thing as righteous anger. Here's another reason we know that, because God himself has anger. Did you know that? Did you know that God gets angry? You can actually see that in the text. Look back at verse 6. He mentions it right here. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's the exact same word he's going to use two verses later when talking about a work of the flesh. How interesting. How can it be a work of the flesh if this is something that God has as well? What is the difference between God's wrath, God's anger, and our wrath or our anger? What's the difference here? Well, there's a huge difference. You see, when God is angry, he's angry only at the issue itself. He is angry in appropriate measure. He is angry at things that are truly angering, right? Things that are sin, injustice, unrighteousness. But for us, we're angry about that same thing and ourselves as well. Because break it down any further, what makes us angry? Why is it that we get angry? When you and I find ourselves in an angry place, what has triggered that anger that's, that's threatening for that hulk to come out? What are the things that actually make us angry? There's a few different things. Number one, we get angry uh, when our will is thwarted. We get angry when our will is thwarted. When we don't get to do what we want to do, we get angry. If you don't want to see this work in action, just go hang out with the three-year-olds for like 10 minutes. And when you tell them no, they will be outwardly angry, right? We learn to hide it and suppress it. They don't know that yet. They will just show you when you thwart someone's will and tell them no, they get angry, right? So we're thwarted their will. Here's the second thing. Somebody takes something from you. You had something. Something gets taken from us. We get angry about that. Third thing, we get disappointed. We wanted something to happen, and it doesn't happen. We expected something to go this way, and it doesn't go that way. We had plans, the plans get dashed, okay? We had expectations, and the expectations aren't met. We get disappointed, and that can make us angry. And then finally, we get angry when we're threatened. When someone threatens us, we get angry. This is what you hear when people say, they bow up, Right? Somebody threatens you and you, you bow up. Okay, that's anger that's coming out. It's because we're threatened. The difference between God's wrath and our wrath, the difference in God's anger and our anger is that when the Lord responds to something, he's always responding appropriately. I can't actually disappoint the Lord. He already knows what's going to happen. He's sovereign. He's already seen it. I can't actually take anything away from the Lord. He has all things. He's in control. I can't threaten the Lord. He is not threatened by me or by anybody. All right, so, so I can't actually do any of those things to the Lord. He is fine. He is perfectly angry. But for us, we start with maybe something righteous, and then it gets mixed in with our selfishness. It gets mixed in with who we are and what we want, and that's when things go off the rails. Look what James will say when he talks about it. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Again, he doesn't say, don't be angry. He says, you better be slow to it, though. 
You better examine it. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so when we get angry, what then happens? When we get stuff taken from us or we get disappointed or we get threatened, what happens? Well, we just hulk out, don't we? We just turn into green rage monsters and destroy everything around us, right? Right? That didn't happen to you? Really? Just me? Okay. Uh, well, no, we actually don't do that at all. It's weird, right? We don't turn into green hulking rage monsters because we realize that that's not socially acceptable. Like once you stop being a three-year-old, you can't just throw tantrums all the time. Now, I've heard of a few of you who punched a hole in the wall or two, okay? Not okay. We need to stop that, Right? But typically, we don't do that. Instead, we find other ways of venting our anger. Just because we don't turn into green, ra angry rage monsters doesn't mean that we are not venting our anger. Look at verse 8, and you can begin to see what's happening. He says, here's what you must put away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You'll then see lying to one another, and then down in verse 13, we refuse to forgive one another. These are the most more socially acceptable ways that we begin to vent our anger. Let me show you another. This is in Galatians chapter 5. We've been looking at that over the course of the series too. In a list of the works of the flesh, look what it says here. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. This is what anger produces. This is how we vent our anger. We typically don't go nuts and just start beating people up. We get even. We start slandering. We hold malice and hatred in our hearts. We stir up dissensions and divisions. We, we build small groups. We, 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 we sow discord. We find some way of venting that anger in a way that makes us feel satisfied. And these are the things that will destroy us. When you and I give in to our anger, when we begin to just let that anger run amok, it will end up destroying us. Case in point, you can look at Will Smith. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past two weeks, you know what happened at the Oscars a couple weeks ago. Oscars are the annual ceremony where all the actors get together and congratulate one another. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, and Will Smith will ultimately win Best Actor this year. But before that happens, comedian Chris Rock, who's the host, uh, makes a joke about Will Smith's wife. He's been making jokes about everybody all night long. Will Smith, sitting on the front row, strides up and literally slaps him across the face and then walks back down, sits down, and begins hurling obscenities at him. I think it's safe to say he was angry. Don't you think? He's angry. He's now been banned from the Oscars for the next 10 years. Who knows if I'll have to hand his Oscar back. The night that should have been one of the pinnacles of his career is now shrouded in shame. Why? Because he got angry. And because instead of checking that, he says, no, I'm just going to vent that. Here's what seems normal. That on national television in front of the entire academy and all of my peers, I want to stride up on stage and just let that go. And now it's leading to ruin and destruction. This is what anger does when it goes unchecked. This is what our fleshly anger will do if we're not careful. 
And so you and I have to learn how to fight the flesh. We have to fight this anger that's inside of us. You say, well, then what do we do? How do we deal with our anger? Well, let's ask a second question. How does the Lord deal with his anger? What does God do with his anger? He has righteous wrath. How does he respond to that? Well, let's look at what he does. The Father creates the whole world. He makes Adam and Eve and puts them in the garden. He gives them one rule. Don't eat of this tree or you will die. They instantly go and eat of the tree. God has every right in this moment to destroy them. In that moment, he has already warned them. He told them what would happen. He has every right to kill them on the spot. He would still be holy. He would still be just. He would still be righteous in doing so. He would still be pure and holy, the, the one eternal right God. And that's not what he does. He banishes them from the garden, but not before making skins for them, covering them. And then he pursues them. He unleashes a millennia-long plan to make sure they have a way back home, to make sure that they don't die forever. He will give them chance after chance. He will create the nation of Israel through Abraham. He will give them the law. He will give them leaders. He will give them prophets. And even though they abandon him time and time again, even though they fail him time and time again, the Lord never abandons his people even when they constantly do so until ultimately he will send his son, Jesus Christ. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Now, brief pause. I, I need to clear something up. Uh, because there is a misunderstanding that some of us may have, uh, and it, it really, I don't know where it comes from, but it's something that we definitely need to address. For some people, when they begin to learn about the Lord, there's this misconception that in the Old Testament, you get old, wrathful God, right? He's the old man in the sky, he's the father, and he's the one always killing people, right? He's out there, he's very angry, he's the Old Testament God, but that's what God is in the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, and you get mild-mannered Jesus, Right? Old Testament, you get the Hulk. New Testament, you get Bruce Banner, right? Old Testament, you get old and wrath. New Testament, you get loving Jesus as if these are two different people. This is patently untrue. This is patently false. Actually read the text, and here's what you will begin to see. In the Old Testament, yes, you see a God who has wrath. You will also see a God who has incredible grace. He speaks it in his own name. He says, listen, I love to give forgiveness to thousands of generations. You see a God who continues to reach out his, to his people again and again, who gives second, third, and 85th chances. You see a God who, who says, I'm going to bring calamity, and then holds it off and holds it off and holds it off as long as possible, sometimes for decades and even centuries, because he does not want to bring this judgment on his people. You see him constantly reaching out to his people again and again. In the Old Testament, you see wrath, but you absolutely see grace. And in the New Testament, yes, you see a God of love in Jesus Christ. He is love itself. But make no mistake, Jesus also could get angry. Does your Jesus get angry? Seriously, you need to think about Jesus. Did, did you know he got angry at times? Look at this. Here's Mark chapter 3, uh, verse 5. It says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He wants to heal a guy who's got a withered hand, and these people are angry. These priests are angry because he would dare to do so on a Sabbath and break a rule. He can't handle it. It says he's angry at them. 
What about Jesus when he's turning over the tables in the temple? Do you think he did that passively? Hey, guys. And just kind of turned them over. He's angry. Zeal for his house is consuming them. He's turning over the tables. What about John 11 where he's at the, weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus with Mary and Martha. It says he was deeply moved in spirit. And interesting, this word means he was angry. Angry at what? Clearly not the mourners. He's angry at the death of his friend and the sin that has caused it. There is an anger in him as well. Jesus felt anger. Now imagine what that's like for Jesus. Because along with this anger, Jesus is incredibly powerful. You ever thought about how powerful Jesus is? If you hung out with Jesus, you would see amazing things. You could see Jesus calm a storm with a word. Jesus could look at a storm. If the storm is raging around him, he says, stop, and the whole ocean will be quiet. Did it ever occur to us that the same God who could still a storm with a word can also start a storm with a word? That the same God who can stop a storm can start a tornado in a moment and send it where he wills. To start a hurricane and send it where he wills. He has that power. Demons and spiritual forces that would put us into hysterics, into our worst nightmares, that we have no power over and no ability to overcome, can't even stand a word from Jesus Christ. He says, flee, and they cannot help but go. This is the kind of power that is in Jesus Christ. So see this now. Jesus has all this incredible power, and he sees anger at sin, and then it gets worse. Jesus will be backstabbed by those closest to him. He'll be slandered. People who claim to be God's people will call him demon-possessed, will call for his head. His own family won't even understand him. And then after that, at the end of his life, his friends will abandon him. He'll get spit on. He'll get lied about. He'll get slandered. And then the physical abuse starts. They will punch him. They will torture him, and then they will murder him. And he deserves none of it. Put all of that together. You have a God who is angry at sin, who has all power, and is being incredibly mistreated. What would we do in that situation? I'd burn it all. Wouldn't you? If you were, it had that kind of power at your disposal and you were going through that, you saw all this sin, you saw what people were doing, you know we would get that wrong. We would absolutely go too far. We would absolutely let that anger get away from us. And what does Jesus Christ do? Nothing. With all of that anger, he does nothing. He never retaliates like a sheep led to the slaughter is silent, so is Jesus before his accusers. Why? Because of his unbelievable love for us. You see, there's not simply anger in the God of the universe. More than that, there is love. More than his anger at sin, even greater than that, is his love for you and I. People he made in his own image. 
He calls us sons. He calls us daughters. He longs for us and wants us to return home. And so even when we rightfully deserve his wrath, even when we rightfully deserve destruction, even when we rightfully deserve his anger, and he even feels it instead of venting that wrath on us, instead he sends his son to come endure all of that and then die on a cross just for us. This is the amazing grace of God. This is the incredible love that he gives to us. It is more vast and overwhelming than we can possibly imagine. Whereas you and I would let that anger get a hold of us. Jesus says, no, I came for this very purpose, that you would have life. And so listen, for God so loved the world, the sin-soaked world, the broken world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That while we were enemies of God, it says in Ephesians 2, enemies, God made us alive together in Jesus Christ. That while we were still sinners, Romans 5, Jesus demonstrates his love for us in dying for us while we're still ungodly. His love for us is so vast that it overwhelms even that anger. But please don't think that anger has gone away. If you think, Adam, God just doesn't look at sin anymore. He just ignores it. He doesn't think about it. He's just the mild-mannered Jesus. Please do not misunderstand or underestimate the very wrath of God. We will celebrate what happens this week. Because that wrath has to go somewhere. That wrath must be satisfied. It is righteous wrath. It is wrath that is necessary, but instead of falling on us, Jesus makes sure it will fall on him instead. When Jesus Christ goes to the cross, he is literally saying the wrath of God must be satisfied and he lets it fall on himself so it doesn't fall on us. Anytime you and I feel the temptation to let our anger get the best of us, to feel that we are righteously angry and we are the ones to bring vengeance. We are the ones to make it right. There ought to be a look to the cross and recognize that there was a time you and I were enemies of God and worthy of the wrath of God. But because we are so loved, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, he made sure that wrath did not fall on us, but instead fell on himself to give us life. The gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free from the tyranny of anger because it reminds us that if not for the grace of God, we too would be under his wrath. If you feel yourself tempted, if you feel yourself in a place where that anger gets the best of you, look to the cross and recognize that Jesus Christ loves us so much that he died for us. And if you say, but Adam, I still can't get a hold of it. You don't understand what's been done to me. You don't understand what's happened to me. You don't understand what's happening in the world. I, I may not, but please understand, if you feel like you can't do that, there is someone who can help. Because when Jesus saved us, he didn't simply die for us. No, he took his Holy Spirit to live in us. He says, I'm going to put him in you. This is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so quite literally, the one who endured such hostility from sinful men, the one who endured the backstabbing, endured the slander, endured the torture, he endured all of that and did not let his anger get out of check. That very Jesus Christ lives in you. Which means you have his help to deal with our anger. It's not up to you. His Holy Spirit will help you.
we will simply sow to the Spirit, live to the Spirit, instead of trying to handle things on our own. What would happen if I choose to turn away from that anger and instead follow after the Spirit and to say, Lord, you are just, you can avenge, you can repay, but I will seek to honor you by loving like you have loved me. So if that's the case, let's look back then at all of the different ways that you and I sometimes vent our anger and see if instead we can respond in a gospel-centric way instead. Go back to verse 8 and let's look at these few verses very quickly. Let's look at the different ways that we might be tempted. First off, anger and wrath. Those two words in the New Testament are basically synonymous. They mean the same thing. They're used interchangeably in different places. But when we're talking about our kind of hatred or our kind of anger and wrath, we're talking about a settled hatred of something or someone. A settled hatred for sin is fine. A settled hatred for a person is not. Is there anyone in our lives that we are content to hate? Now, let that sink in for just a second. Because we're all thinking, no, no, I love people. Think back to the last time you got angry. I would want to think any time in your experience where a name is mentioned and it sets you off. Just their name. Okay, that's hatred. Is there any place in our life we just let that sit? We're going, no, I'm, I'm, I'm cool to hate that person. I'm, I'm cool to hate that group. I'm, ho- I'm, I'm cool to hate those people. In fact, anybody you call those people, we probably need to talk about that. Okay. Is there any place where you just say, no, I'm cool to hate that person. Okay, that's not all right. That's, that's literally of the flesh. That kind of anger and hatred. We can hate the sin. We're not allowed to hate the sinner. Have we just said, mm, too hard to parse out. We'll just do both. Praise God he doesn't do that for us. Anger and wrath. Look at the second one, malice. Malice. This is a deliberate intention to harm. When we talk about malice, we're talking about a deliberate intention to harm. This is, I want to hurt someone. Now, sometimes we hurt other people and we don't mean to do that. You ever done that before? I have. Where you say something and you unintentionally hurt somebody's feelings. Okay, it happens. We're not perfect. That's going to happen. That's not here. Sometimes, though, we say things because we want to harm somebody else. We do things because we want to harm somebody else. Now, typically, that doesn't mean like getting into a fight and physically harming them. Sometimes it does, but usually our flesh will find some different way of inflicting that harm. We will ignore them. We will break something that they like. We will take away something that they like. We will make sure to do something that they don't like. We'll pretend we didn't know. But we have a deliberate intention to harm, to needle them, to make them pay, to make them feel it. I want them to hurt like I have hurt. A deliberate intention to harm, that's malice. Okay, we we don't have a right to do that. Again, if God did that to us, we would be destroyed. We would have nothing. Is there any place in life where I know what I'm doing? I am choosing to hurt other people. Okay, there's there's just no place for that. So we got anger, wrath, ma- um, or anger, wrath, malice, then slander. Now we get to kind of the outworking of that. All of these kind of flow in and out of one another. Slander is when we actually begin to walk this out. One of the ways we hurt other people is by slandering them. This is the defamation of human character. The defamation of human character. You say, well, I don't know, that sounds terrible. I don't do anything like that. We do this all the time. 
Slander is when you and I do this, is when we choose to believe the absolute worst about somebody. When we see someone, we hear what they say, we see what they do, and we instantly interpret it to be the worst possible thing it could be. We take something ambiguous, and we assume it is the worst possible thing it could possibly be. Okay, that's slander. So I didn't tell it to their face. It's still slander. This is what we do. This is all we did during the pandemic, by the way. Think about the people who did the opposite of what you did during the pandemic and what you thought of them. They weren't just different, they were evil. They were terrible. They wanted to kill everyone. They hated America. Really? Seriously? We thought these kind of things. That is slander. Why? You don't know those people. And usually things are a lot more complex than we want to admit they are. Nah, it's just easier to assume they're evil. That everything they say is evil, everything they do is evil, everything they've ever done or ever will do is evil. We make them a caricature. This is slander. And then we take it up a notch by actually saying it out loud. P.S. You can also cause, call this gossip because that sounds better somehow. You know, it's just gossip. All right, listen, it's, no, it's terrible. It's slander and it's meant to hurt and defame and destroy somebody. I can't get away with physically hurting you, and so I will verbally hurt you. That's slander. It's our anger running amok. It's our flesh guiding us. This does not bring about the righteousness of God. It's the slander that we bring. Skip down to verse 13. You'll notice this, a refusal to forgive. As the Lord has forgiven us, we must also forgive. Paul is actually reiterating what Jesus said. This is actually terrifying in Matthew 5 where he just says, hey, listen, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. He's not being conditional in his love. He's just basically saying this. If you don't understand that you've been forgiven so much so that you refuse to forgive other people, I don't think you understand salvation. Because we don't deserve salvation. I have been forgiven. If I received this grace, if I was an object of wrath, but God is just in his grace, loved me and forgiven me when I did not deserve it, how then can I go and demand everything be right in someone else? I should forgive as I have been forgiven. Is there anybody in our lives we refuse to forgive? We say, I'll forgive them, 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 not you. Is it, have we ever done that? Is there anybody in our life we just refuse to forgive? Now, look, I don't, I don't have time to go into all of the ins and outs of forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean that you're saying what they did was right. Forgiveness does not mean that you got to be best friends. Forgiveness means this, that I refuse to hold this over your head anymore. I will stop holding this against you anymore. Is there anybody in our life we're allowing this hatred to poison us and other relationships? Because I refuse to forgive. That's anger of the flesh poisoning us. And then finally, there's strife and all the rest. Remember that list from Galatians 5. Enmity, strife, divisions, jealousy, uh, dissensions, rivalries. That leads to fits of anger. What you see anger doing is destroying relationships. It will destroy churches. It will destroy families. It will destroy friendships. It will destroy organizations. And we start moving in little circles and little pockets and we get angry at different people in other pockets within the people that we say that we love. And the enemy loves this. He wants to let that anger feed off one another until it all just blows apart. It's anger. It's hatred. And the Lord says when we find these things in ourselves, there's a very simple solution. We need to repent. 
We just need to repent. We need to turn from those things and instead say, Jesus, because you have loved me and you have given me grace, can you show me how to live like you live, to react to anger like you do, to to follow you, to let you lead and guide me. But Jesus, if I find any of these things in myself, and we all will at different points in our life, can we turn from those and instead repent that the Lord might transform us and make our heart like his. So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And heads bowed and eyes closed. Look, this is, this is a hard one because we do this. Sometimes we just, we wake up. I don't know what Will Smith felt like an hour after what he did, but I imagine it felt like waking up. Wait, what happened? I did what? And I'm sure we all have stories of times that you and I have let our anger get the best of us in what we said, in what we did. And so if the Lord is bringing us up something even right now, can we just take it to the Lord? Remember, you can always, <laughs> you can always have peace when we come to repent. We're always going to find an open ear from the Lord. We're always going to find forgiveness. But there can't be any change, any healing until there's honesty. So even right now, can you just take it to the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. Can you help me? My anger, man, it got out of control. I let my flesh take the lead. But Lord, I want you to be in control, so change me, help me. I turn away from that and I choose you. I don't know what that looks for you right now. But even right now, can you just lift that up to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I, I choose you instead. Help me. Help me. I want to find the life that is in you, the joy, the life, the salvation in you, and not the pain and destruction that comes when my anger is left unchecked. And so, Father, help us. You know how angry we get. I'm so sorry. Lord, we hide it. We gussy it up. We try to make it presentable. But at the end of the day, it's still just anger and sometimes hatred. And Lord, I'm so thankful that's not how you treated me. That's not how you treated us. You could have. You'd have had every right and you didn't. Because your love is so much greater than our sin. Your mercy is so much more than what we've done. And so, Lord, just draw us back to you. Draw us back to your salvation, Lord, that as we interact with others, we might give that same grace. We might give that same mercy to others. We love you, Lord. Help us. Help us. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, and for your transformation. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand up with me if you will. Let's worship. You come as the Lord leads you, but let's choose to offer these things to the Lord this morning.